The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So now we know clearly that uh, it's not easy being a human being. (laughs) We're on our way, right? Of course, there are aspects of the retreat experience that are probably pleasant and leaving a good taste in the heart. And other aspects of our experience here, experience on retreat that may be very challenging, unpleasant sensations in the body, overactive, underactive mind, whatever it might be. And it's, uh, it's a little bit hard for us because suffering has been, you know, for each of us in its own way, suffering has been such a regular visitor. It's hard for us to acknowledge the possibility that we don't really know what it is. You know, just to be provocative, we're pretty arrogantly certain we know what dukkha, what suffering is. And it's exactly that lack of curiosity, that lack of humility about dukkha that perpetuates dukkha. And like one of the examples of this is it seems a lot of the time, at least in the way we talk about suffering, it seems like we're saying, others are saying, we're saying, that there's some kind of tension between the suffering of others and my own suffering. Like either I'm looking at my own well-being or I'm looking at concerned about others' well-being, but I can't do both. Either I'm turning inward I'm turning outward. And it just, that just seems compelling. That, that that's actually some kind of truth. remember reading a while back um, one of the Thai forced Western monks, uh, Ajahn Jayasaro, said something or wrote something like, if you're seeing a conflict between your well-being and the well-being of others, perhaps it's because we don't understand the nature of well-being, like what well-being means or what well-being is. One of the, you know, the Buddha's approach to dukkha, and you know, most of what we repeat as the story of the Buddha is meant to be. Whether it's true or not isn't really the point at this point because we don't know. 
So let's tell the story, you know, the myth, the legend, in a way that's useful. And uh, so, because sometimes it, it's told as if the Buddha was selfish, and you know, boy, life is rough, so I'm I'm out of here, that kind of thing. You know, it's difficult being a human being. It's difficult being married or whatever. I'm going to go off to the woods where it's easy. There's a particular passage that I really love from the dis- from the tradition. Clumps of grass dug up by the plow littered the earth, covered with tiny dead creatures, insects, and worms. As he beheld the earth with all these strewn about, he grieved greatly, as if a relative had been killed. Seeing the people plowing the fields, their bodies discolored by wind, the dust, the scorching rays of the sun, oxen wearied by the toil of pulling the plows, great compassion overwhelmed that great noble person. So somebody's writing about seeing the Buddha and being moved even by something seemingly ordinary, you know, the bugs that get crushed in agriculture and the people who toil doing the hard work of growing food. And when we remember, you know, the the Buddha was moved he in seeing the suffering of illness, the suffering of aging, the suffering of dying, and and repulsed of his and, and others' strategy, which is to, as much as you can, indulge in sensual pleasures as a distraction, right? So kind of the story that we can tell is, oh, here's somebody who saw the limitations of living in a bubble, you know, a privileged bubble, and decided to investigate their own heart to see if there's some resolution to the suffering that we all experience. Is there a resolution And it's actually it's good it's good right now to reflect on that question. Like what is your mind does your mind want to give a certain answer to that question? Because it might actually be more functionally useful for, uh, it might be more functionally useful for the response to be, you know, I don't know. That's a good question. Is there a resolution to suffering? What, I wonder what people say about that. You know, what are the reports from people who have really, with a lot of integrity, looked into their heart and mind, looked into their experience, paid attention to the world? Did they find a resolution of suffering? You know, it's like it's just interesting how people. We all, we throw around, you know, in kind of casual conversations, certainties. 
but it may be perhaps would be much better to like in our conversations to acknowledge together that you know we don't really know i don't really know i wonder let me explore let me see what i can figure out what i can learn from my life what are the roots of suffering can they be abandoned these roots the supporting causes I mean, there's some really beautiful um, reflections or thoughts like, uh, I will not rest until all beings are free of suffering. You know, the bodhicitta, bodhisattva resolve. But isn't that a beautiful thing? I mean, that's not necessarily suffering because of suffering. What is our response to internal and external suffering? This is really what we'd like to explore this retreat these days. And it really begins by establishing, you know, kind of respecting the limits and the limits of our understanding and the very deep tendency in our hearts to want to cling to an idea or cling to a view instead of just being a good student, which means that humility, that, you know, investigation doesn't come from certainty. It comes from curiosity and and really this wish to see clearly, to understand the nature and and when we approach the issue of human existence and suffering from that point of view then this uh you know mind versus others it's like and and this is really the point of view that the buddha took which is what we have what we know what we can only know is this experience right here our heart the heart the sensitivity, the heart. Whatever we know about other suffering or whatever our mind is doing to neglect or not know other suffering, whatever we know about our own suffering or all the ways we're ignoring, denying our own suffering, all that is right here. This is the experience. So whether you're one in this moment who's in a lot of denial about your suffering or the suffering of others, or you're one that's quite concerned about yours or other suffering or some other relationship to the our experience as a human being, the sensitivity closed off, wide open, this is how it is. This is what's being known. And this is already, I mean, it, this should seem somewhat shocking because this is part of this under, I think, this misunderstanding that like being sensitive to my experience is somehow a rejection of the world. Like this is a very common criticism of some of the Buddhist teachings that we even say turning inward 
is somehow rejecting the world or removing or retreating from the world. As opposed to, uh, like I talked about this morning, you know, developing sensitivity, developing the capacity to connect, to see clearly, to open, to feel, is exactly what we need to be a human being, to feel, to connect, to be sensitive. Instead of thinking about suffering, we develop the kind of heart that can actually meet our life, meet the world that we inhabit. I mean, we're quite literally in the soup of the world. And The problem really is that the mind has picked up a lot of bad habits of managing the experience of being in the soup. Distraction, denial, greed, aversion. So when we come on retreat or when we, you know, meditate, turn inward, open up, see things as they are, we're meeting the soup. You know, we're trying to have an authentic, honest connection with the soup, which is really not me, it's the world. That's what we're connecting with. The world is only ever known in the experience of our sensitive heart. It's not like we actually, right? Everything is received, everything is felt here. This article by Andy Olensky, he's um, reflecting on compassionate action um, in the Buddhist tradition, mostly from the Theravada, the early Buddhism perspective. He writes the articles called uh, The Other Dukkha. He writes, the cause of suffering is desire, we could say identification with desire, or I like to say identification with desire. And he continues, manifesting in its two opposite forms of greed and hatred. Each of these are mental states that flash briefly, though repeatedly, through the mind as one makes decisions and then acts on those decisions. The actions rooted in greed and hatred then reverberate out through a vast network of cause and effect And I think the noble truth of suffering is broad enough to include the harm these deeds can do to others. The Prince Siddhartha, the Buddha, the Buddha-to-be, awoke to the realization that he was living in a bubble and possibly also to the fact that the bubble was being carried on the backs of other living creatures who were suffering as a result. The spark for this awakening was empathy toward others. For example, 
as he watched a plowman work at work. And then he repeats that passage that I read a few minutes ago. And then writes, what made him unique was his inability to acquiesce to his own personal comfort when surrounded by others who were suffering. <laughs> the Buddha has this passage that Andy quotes of, in a kind of in a sar- seemingly sarcastic way, uh, puts down a, a friend of his who was, uh, you know, living a normal existence. And he was sort of saying that, you know, you know, how amazing that you're able to, you know, see substance in the fleeting nature of sense experience. That seeing these creatures on the path of death, you are attached to sensual pleasures in the midst of the most frightful dangers. I, however, am timid, much perturbed. As I think of the dangers of old age, sickness, and death, I find no peace or content, much less joy, seeing the world with fire as if ablaze. So there's something that we're learning to manage in our practice, this, I guess we could say, exposure, you know, that sometimes is really clearly for us overwhelming. And we do shrink back. We do hide or drink or, you know, distract ourselves when it's too much. And we're really trying to navigate the exposure to the fire, to the world being ablaze, Ignorance, our own ignorance, the ignorance of others, the collective ignorance, of, and then that ignorance being expressed as greed and aversion. You know, acting itself out, playing itself out in ways that torment the hearts of others. And to manage that torment, beings distract themselves with greed and aversion. You know, act out more greed and aversion. And that cycle, that ignorant, that repeated cycle of not seeing clearly the causes of suffering then allows this kind of world to carry on, to continue on. And every once in a while, you know, the mind gets clear and we really sense that, whether it's in a kind of the microcosm of our own mind or heart or in a particular relationship we're in or in a family system, in a neighborhood, in society, we really see this, you know, these cycles of samsara, as we say. How it is that greed, anger, delusion and the torment, the unpleasantness of greed, anger, delusion, they obscure the mind you know, numb the heart so that it makes sense. It's in that context of being beaten down, being affected by a greed and a, the unpleasantness of greed and aversion, the unpleasantness of being disconnected and unaware. It seems from that point of view to make sense to continue being greedy and hateful and unaware. 
and on and on. And so it is, it is a little overwhelming when on purpose we develop the sensitivity, we develop that internal integrity little by little, so we can honestly acknowledge that those cycles in our own mind, heart, and around us in the world. And it should be shocking. I mean, it's, it's very, for me, inspiring, impressive, moving, um, to see that, you know, I mean, it, even, I'm not, I don't want to be too idealistic, but, you know, that movement toward monasticism, it is pretty radical for people to give up their Starbucks and their clothes and their money and their hair and, you know, a lot of what we sort of depend on just to kind of get through the day, comforts and pleasures, because they're interested in optimizing their life out of compassion, like really wanting to understand the causes, wanting to be a symbol of the way, you know, the way forward, the way of, you know, being a sane human being. And of course, it isn't exclusive to nuns and monks. It's really we're all invited in our own way to turn, make that great turning from just a life that's only driven, you know, the first, at least in the tradition, the first, the very first teaching the Buddha gave was this teaching on the middle way where to his old spiritual friends that he had tracked down after his awakening, you know, he said there's, you know, there's this middle way. It's not the way forward, the way to the end of suffering is not through the pursuit of beautiful sense experience, which I think would involved, involve ideas of utopia. You know, as nice as utopia is, like a just society where people are treated fairly, I don't know if you know this, but you know, in the at the time of the Buddha, there was for people who, you know, karmically or whatever, were seen to have like really great fortune. They had two options, and and I think we nowadays, you know, we misinterpret it because we use different terms. You know, back then, things were <clears throat> more like autocratic, where there would be a a queen or a king in charge of things. So one option for that being that had really great fortune would be to become a, a just ruler, like a ruler of the, all the world, and to rule justly and you know, to kind of create systems that took care of people. Or one would wake up and become a spiritual leader, right? So those are... So it's, it's like the, the tradition itself is really built like on 
from an ordinary point of view, the best thing you could do is somehow get a lot of power and use it for justice. But there's something you can do that's even better. And this is what we want to keep an open mind to. So it's not in any way putting down. It's like really held up. Being a just ruler, somebody with a lot of power who uses that power wisely is really held up as the sort of top of the heap of somebody still orienting around a happiness that's dependent on sense experience. Because any utopia we imagine is in that realm of sense experience. That's why like in Buddhist cosmology, even the, the beautiful celestial realms, you know, in that cosmology, that's still in the sense realm. It's just a more refined place, a more of a utopian place. But it's not seen as an end. It's just seen as a nice place that arises and passes away, isn't dependable. And the lower celestial realms are jealous. And you've got to deal with that. Right? I mean, it's a little bit like living in Minneapolis and knowing that a lot of people in the world are mistreated and don't have enough shelter, food. I mean, it re- it's stressful to remain oblivious to our relative privilege. So going back to the middle way, right? So the the Buddha was really clear that no matter how you imagine sensuality, the most beautiful, it will always be limited. It will always be problematic. This is really getting at the truth of dukkha. I remember uh, someone I've had some contact with really impactful for me, one of the senior nuns in the Western Ajahn Shah tradition, Ajahn Sundara, a French woman, um, who's I think still at a Bayagiri. Um, but uh, she wrote an article. And uh, yeah, I think in that article she wrote, she has this, I'll just, this will be a rough paraphrase, you know, says something like, you know your practice is really ma- is beginning to mature when you realize that even getting what you want is dukkha. So the Buddha's his first, you know, at least as the legend goes, first Dharma talk with his old Dharma buddies that he tracked down after his awakening. He says there's a middle way. This is the way. It's not about any kind of pursuit of sensuality. And it's not about rejecting any kind of rejection of sensuality. Which is in a way still, the mind is still obsessed somehow. Like, thinking that, you know, here I am, I've got a physical body, I have taste buds, 
I feel things, I hear things, I see things. I am definitely a sensual beast. Yet sensuality never delivers that permanent safety, comfort that I seek. I give up. I'm out of here, right? So the Buddha is basically saying in this teaching on the middle way that thinking we're going to construct or get something in the central world that will really resolve suffering is diluted because it doesn't happen. And rejecting sensuality, as long as we're a sensual beast, that doesn't work either. Fortunately, there's a middle way, which is not the midpoint between those two. It's something completely different than it's neither that nor that neither pursuing sense pleasures as if it's going to lead to happiness, any meaningful or lasting happiness, nor thinking that we have to reject sense pleasures or sense experience. We just need to understand sensuality. It is what it is. Sometimes it's pleasant, sometimes it's unpleasant. If pleasantness comes our way and it isn't on the backs of others, isn't causing others harm, There's nothing inherently unskillful of just receiving, appreciating the sense pleasures that come our way. And when unpleasant experience comes our way and there's something we can do about it that doesn't cause others harm, well, we do something. We put a sweater on when we're cold or we take a sweater off when we're hot because it generally doesn't cause others suffering to take care of ourselves. But we don't pretend just because I've put aside cold, because I put a sweater on, that my problems are over. So we continue the search. And we've got some important, right? When tomorrow I think is going to sort of lay out most of that or a good part of that talk where the Buddha then introduces the Four Noble Truths or at least begin to talk more about uh, the Buddhist teachings on dukkha in that talk, because that's where he goes next. He kind of outlines the middle way, which is really about understanding the nature of dukkha. And like I mentioned a, a few minutes ago, the important thing is to realize that this sensitive heart, this is where we experience the world. This is the world that we know. It isn't out there anywhere. The beauty and the suffering, the injustice and the wisdom, the compassion, whatever we know, whatever we think is out there, whatever we've experienced, will experience, it's all going to be here. The only thing we know ever is our subjective experience or the experience of the sensitive heart. So that means everything we need to learn. Instead of emphasizing how to respond, instead we're really emphasizing how to understand experience, how to connect, how to see clearly. Because response comes naturally from connecting, from knowing, from being intimate, from seeing things as they are. And that, that's the Buddha's pointing out instruction from understanding his own heart. Right? It wasn't about fixing the world. 
It was about, in a sense, fixing the heart that knows the world, that relates to the world, and therefore and then responds to the world. And it's really, I mean, we have some pointing out instructions, but basically we have to do the same thing. We have to get interested. Well, what is the cause of suffering? Whatever suffering is moving our heart right now, it doesn't matter if it's our own, what we might in use in sort of normal language call my own suffering, or it's the suffering of the world or the suffering of another person, that's being experienced right here in our lived experience, in the sensitive heart. And it's just a question if we're going to relate to that impression of suffering with an arrogant certainty that we know what it is, or with an authentic openness and humility. What is this experience? What can be learned here? What isn't being seen here? And of course, the thing that makes this so difficult is this investigation means being intimate with dukkha. I mean, it's, it makes a lot of sense, actually, that the awakening process primarily is awakening to dukkha because it's the not seen, like I'm quoting the Buddha, basically, it's the not seen dukkha that is the cause of dukkha. The not understanding dukkha is the cause of it. And it just somehow makes sense. You know, we, we have this sort of common sense understanding, no pain, no gain. And it's not that it's, it feels good, right? And I kind of, this is when I invited people to share a little bit about how dukkha is liberating this morning. You know, I was really looking for people to talk about how these places in our life where dukkha has shown up as really difficult experience, really painful, humiliating, whatever kind of experience, and how maybe not initially, maybe even not for a long time, but maybe ultimately very appreciative of what showed up in our life because of what we learned, because of what the heart was able to go beyond or let go of, purify in that heat of just being with the reality of our sensitive heart. I mean, in a very simple way, we learn so much even with knee pain or restlessness or sleepiness, you know, the ordinary discomfort when we're sitting and we don't want to sit. We learn so much about how seeking sensual relief, you know, like uh, entertaining fantasy to get me out of the pain or constant physical adjustments to make it go away or, or we get into a rage, it isn't fair, other people seem to be sitting comfortably, why, why is it only me who feels so uncomfortable in my body? You know, but... <coughs> after we've been around, you know, done that 10,000 times, we start to get, I mean, isn't this true? Some of you really know this, those of you who've been practicing for a while, but when there's a lot of painful emotions or painful physical sensations or irritating things, 
an unpleasant scent or unpleasant sound in the room or whatever it might be. One of the things that ultimately we really get is being really intimate right there with it and relaxing right in the middle of it. That's a safe spot. And any deviation, any old, subtle, even the most creative and subtle habit to fix it, to get rid of it, all of a sudden it just like exponentially becomes more unpleasant. But when the heart's right in the middle, curious, open, allowing, yielding, like you are my teacher, I yield to you. Now this, this can't be fake. And when we don't have that faith and that stability of mind, it's actually, and we talked about this in the small group, those who were there, you know, that it's useful to turn away, to find something else to pay attention to and not to keep paying attention to the pain because we think that's what a good Dharma student does. But to go take a walk or have a cup of tea or do some forgiveness or loving kindness practice watch the clouds, do a deep relaxation, restabilize the mind by being aware of something more neutral and pleasant, regaining the faith that my heart has the capacity to be intimate and then maybe initially do just a touch and go, oh yeah, that painful emotion is still there, radically open, intimate, and turning away again and showing up again, and turning away. It's like how a lot of us work with death, and illness, and injustice. Right? We try to not forget it. So there's this beautiful dance about not being obsessed, because sometimes we slip into obsession, where we're just obsessed by these, you know, these sort of terrors, or... Uh, things that we reject. And we feel we end up becoming a brittle and uh, often eventually bitter person because we're misusing the suffering, the real suffering in our lives and in the world. It's like we feel like because there's real suffering, we need to be loyal to it. Even if the actual effect on our life, on our body, on our heart, is destructive. As opposed to understanding or or knowing, hearing, and then really developing faith that it's about understanding. And understanding only comes, right? Understanding comes when the heart is interested. We can't force insight or understanding. So this whole point of creating a wholesome community as best we can, like in terms of the retreat container and all the innumerable people and contributions that allows us to have a nice, you know, relatively nice building and the beautiful meal that people created tonight, Pat Rose saves me those beautiful salad and the brownies and dressing and I forget who originally cooked the lentil soup and the team that made the quinoa and 
all the other wonderful things, the bread that was purchased at our local bakery, and all the causes and conditions we use, we need to kind of use the pleasantness, our own gratitude for our practice and our good fortune to have run into these teachings, our own spiritual instincts to see the goodness and beauty and wisdom, compassion in our own hearts and actually be moved in the same way that we'd be moved if we saw it in another person. So we can really navigate this middle way, which is this way of being interested in dukkha. I think when we'll talk about some of the insights in, in terms of dukkha, it's like there is dukkha. It should be understood. It has been understood. These are the first three insights. It's like we're actually orienting our life around the truth of suffering as we directly know it, as we directly feel it. It's such a powerful grounding. And a lot of us, like when we first bumped into these teachings, it was this, it is this teaching that it was a powerful coming home, like like the heart knows this is so true to orient our life in this way around dukkha. Because I just speaking from my own personal experience, it was, you know, the sense that nobody was talking about this just felt so alienated, alienating as a young person. And it was so obvious in my experience as a human being, the anxiety, the sort of um, clear suffering that most, you know, the pursuits of most people, you know, just seemed in my own kind of interests. And, you know, just, you know how it is with the hormones and the social pressures and then acting on those hormones and social pressures and making a mess of things and doing it again and doing it again and trying to be liked and trying to get ahead and trying to fit in. And and if we have just even a sliver of sensitivity, it becomes pretty apparent. Being trapped, how oppressive that is. And then, you know, just looking around and seeing all the other ways suffering moves, all the other oppressive forces. You know, and it makes you want to drink or it makes you want to run off into the woods. You know, we try all those things. Become cynical. (laughs) I mean, it's like to manage the exposure. And then you come around some a set of teachings uh, that says, no, 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 you're not going to win. There's no way to manage the exposure. The way forward is to do to develop the skill so you can do this stance where you practice not forgetting dukkha. You keep it close because it's your teacher. Right? It's going to teach the heart how to be free, how to let go, how to respond. But we have to develop that talent about how to keep it close because we tend to swing where we're overwhelmed by dukkha and then we're pretending there isn't dukkha. 
or it's somebody else's problem, not my problem. Right? So we're disconnected in some way. So how do we keep it close so that the learning can be as steady as it can be? No, it's never going to be perfectly steady. You know, we have just the right amount of samadhi, just the right amount of wholesome friendships, just the right amount of privilege and good fortune, you know, just the right amount of exposure to suffering. You know, we just got just the right number of friends who are falling apart, you know, one with cancer, one who's being oppressed at work in some way. You know, it will get, it will get really hot sometimes. And then we'll be in a deva realm, a sort of a celestial realm for a while where everything feels pretty easy for us. And then the way we practice will be different. Like when we're in a real hellish time or the exposure is too much, then we'll really be dependent on, like in terms of the craft of life, on that self-soothing. How do we take care of ourselves? How do we modify the exposure that's up for us right now? And when we're in a really easy time, how do we engage? How do we use life? How do we start showing up, increase the exposure, contemplate death, become an activist, serve, uh, get involved in service, join a committee, (laughs) right? Rubbing and scrubbing, volunteer, you know, or if you really want exposure, you know, you get married or you get in an intimate relationship or even more, you have kids (laughs) or a pet if you're weak. (laughs) Some of you know, Wynn and I have a cat. That's about enough for us. We aspire for, you know, in another lifetime we'll have a dog and then further down the road maybe we'll have kids. And that's also true what we're doing on retreat, you know, just modulating the exposure on the retreat. You know, in a way it's not perfect because we've got a schedule and we're sort of working together. But within that schedule, within the form, there are ways to sort of increase exposure when there's no juice in your practice. You start getting a lot of sleepiness. We don't sleep when we're being stalked by a saber-toothed tiger or death or racial injustice, or other things that just, when we're aware, you know, we just, uh, Wynn and I contribute to an organization called Equal Justice, and we just got the calendar, I don't know if anybody else, uh, the Equal Justice Justice Initiative by um, Byron, I forget his last name, well-known activist, lawyer, and he's done a lot of work with uh, um, people who were wrongly incarcerated especially African-American men. And they, the organization is the one that um, founded the museum um, in Montgomery, Alabama, that opened maybe a year ago. And There's actually two institutions. One is sort of about the lynchings, and the other is, I think, more of just the history of the civil rights movement. Um, but, you know, just uh, just to be reminded of the weight of injustice just in our particular country. And there's just like so many other uh, historic 
injustices and traumas that were still that are still reverberating still not only reverberating but also being fed so how do we inhabit this space wisely you know so that this wakes us up this creates the proper incentive like pretending that it's okay only makes sense when we're closed off right so like it's not that we should never take a vacation or never take a nap because people are suffering. But when that's our strategy for happiness, to be disconnected, to basically be taking a nap in our relatively pleasant life situation, well then there's no learning, there's no awakening in that. We're sort of misusing whatever privilege, whatever comforts and, and um, affluence that we have. But to somehow think that full exposure is going to help, well, you can try it and see what happens. See if you learn and come alive and contribute to the alleviation of suffering or whether you get burnt out and cynical or angry and hateful and turn others into enemies, which then in you know, ways just perpetuates the cycles of suffering. What actually helps? It's really a pragmatic question. It's not a philosophical, it's not a conceptual question. It's something for us to navigate actually moment by moment. And when you think you have the answer, then you're screwed because you've stopped navigating it moment to moment. But our mind likes to think it knows. But what we know, what we can actually know is that there's a process and the process is dependent on being sensitive moment to moment. And that's all we get as human beings. We don't get a map. We don't get like right and wrong. That's always going to be on a conceptual level, right and wrong. Should do this, shouldn't do that. Maybe now in hindsight we can look back and say, yeah, that was right or that was wrong. But our practice is actually moment to moment. Being sensitive, as we're aware of what we're sensitive to, it really helps us know whether to increase the exposure or to seclude and retreat, to soothe, to comfort. Just like a wise parent, grandparent does with their child that they're caretaking, right? You know, no, you go explore. I'll be here in the house, you know. You just go. I'll come check on you, you know. And other times, you know, we're just holding the child. We're not letting them go a- anywhere. We keep them close. And a wise parent, you know, knows when to sort of send the child into the wild world, you know, and when to keep them close, when they need soothing when they need to know that, you know, the parent is here. I've got your back. I'm not going anywhere. You don't need to worry. I'll take care of you. And we just have to internalize that wisdom for ourselves as we do our retreat and live our life. So just, you know, in the hours and days ahead, you know, just... Be grateful in a way when suffering shows up as physical pain, emotional pain, sensitivity to others, suffering and pain. Just like 
acknowledge it. I mean, really, as if you were going to bow down. You are, you are the teacher that grounds me. You are the teacher that shows me the way. When I forget you, I'm capable of really horrendous things. Like when people, when human beings are in the bubble of our own comfort, we're willing to do terrible things to other beings if we think they're going to take our comfort away, our privilege away. But when we're aware that privilege, comfort, whatever, is never going to save us ultimately, that it's always coming and going, it's always in motion, then we're not playing that game to the same degree. We don't believe it. Right? We're just using what comforts we can, not amplifying suffering, not taking what isn't ours, sharing, right? Because we understand that the way forward is is understanding something that's not about some utopian sense experience or utopian culture or whatever. And there's no way to reject it. There's no way out. There's really only this way of either we're avoiding understanding or we're deepening understanding. We're avoiding understanding and suffering the consequence or we're growing up or waking up. So I'll leave it here. Let's just take a few seconds, let go of the words. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.